0: Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Postgrad Cheat Sheet. This is the podcast where we dive into all the questions about transitioning into your professional career and all those difficult unspoken topics. My name is Dr. Maria Scott, and I'm a PR professional and a professor. Welcome to the Postgrad Cheat Sheet. I am your host, Dr. Maria Scott. And this week we're actually gonna be talking about forming habits. And I have a really special co-host this week. So welcome Tim Coyle. And he's actually also a former student of mine at the University of Miami. He then went on to earn his master's as an exercise physiologist He's also served as an adjunct professor in the past, and I do feel like that's relevant because if we're talking about how to form habits and how to teach young people, I do think that that's something that's really important. So I'd like to welcome Tim.
1: Thank you, Dr. Scott. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right, so let's get started. Um, You've read The Power of Your People Skills book by Cal Sutliff, and in that book, he talks about forming habits. And this is a topic that I felt you, amongst all the people I know, would really be particularly well-versed. Let's define how long it takes to form a more generalized habit, such as making your bed or meditating or cleaning your room or something like that. Young people, specifically Gen Zers, don't really do. And then I'd like for you to address health-related habits and how long those take to form and maybe why there's a difference between the two.
1: Uh, Yes. So, uh, sure. First, for the generalized habits. As Cal states, those types of habits usually take about 30 to 45 days to form. Uh, You might also see out there in the research something to the note of 21 to 60 days, but the short of it really is it depends, but somewhere in that range. And that could be, you get up, you make your bed every day for 35 days, and now that's a habit. That's wonderful. Uh, You know, this is very different uh, from anything where you're trying to modify your health, because your body takes longer to adapt. There are a lot of hormones involved. You know, you're not the same person every day. You are an emotional being. You're not always rational. So you know, shifting your sleep schedule so you can get eight hours of sleep, eating breakfast, stretching in the morning, or even planning your meals for the day or the week, those habits require your body's participation. And so that can take longer. It can take 60 to 80 days or sometimes longer for it to stick and for your body to adjust. And then you also have to consider the person and, and what else is going on in your life at the time and how easy that is and the role of stress, for example. You know, Some people, when there's a lot of volatility in their life or even a bit of volatility, they might turn inward and say, oh, I can't handle any more change. This, this is enough for me right now. Other people look at volatility and say, oh, well, while all this change is happening, what's one more thing? And so I think things like that, just knowing yourself is a big determinant in figuring out when it's appropriate to change a habit and also how big or small it is compared to uh, whatever else you have going on at the moment.
0: Okay. That's a really good example. And you may have answered my next question um, because your examples were so good and you were so thorough, but basically my question was, is there a time when it might be less for you and that you might see a habit take effect quicker?
1: Yes. So I, I believe it's part of it is the size of the habit or the delta of the change. you know, If you are, you know, health, Human health is an easy one to sort of pin down because we all have to eat at some point, even if you're doing a time-restricted or calorie-restricted way of eating. So I think the important thing to consider is what's the size of the habit? You know, is it just adding one tiny thing as though, okay, I wanna drink eight glasses of water a day. I currently only drink one, so adding a second glass, not a huge change, but it might take some effort. So the size of the change is important. You also have to consider what are your current priorities? You know, how big are they? And this is something, this is just my personal leaning. And I thought this before I had a kid and I, I maintain this now having a child. When it comes to your health, try to overhaul as many of the habits you think you want to as possible before kids, because you don't get that time back. And it's, everything becomes a little more challenging when you have less time. And that to me is one of the biggest changes that I personally underwent. And I saw that from early in my career, coaching people in their forties, fifties, sixties, who said, Oh, well my kids are grown. I've made a career. And this was in concierge medicine. So these people have you know, made a bunch of money and they said, well, now I want to enjoy my health. Can I buy it back? And by how much? And so they had the kids part kind of done with, but they said, yeah, you know, that's, that's something that's really not avoidable. Once you have kids that it, It takes a lot of time and there's less time for you. There's less time for your health. And uh, so I think available time is key and the size of the habit in short. And other things such as uh, buckets, you know, can you organize a series of habits into a bucket cleanly? Does that make sense? And then also things considering like the timing or the time of day. And once more, just what else is going on in your life at the time, going back to that whole priorities thing.
0: All right. So I want to segue really quick because you talked about having some clients that were maybe closer to retirement age. And I guess a really quick question is do you find, whether it's health related or just a habit in general, like even if the habit is just coming to the session, you know what I mean? Making time and making it a priority to come to the session, do you find it's harder for people to form habits? as they get older and later in life when they already have a bunch of existing habits that, it, that they hold?
1: Yes, I can definitely think of some examples where that is specifically true, but also in some ways, as people near that retirement age, in a way they have so much life experience that they may also become more flexible in their thinking. And so I really think it depends on the person. It's really It's really individualized. And I think that's where the future of everything is going is everything is individualized. And so on one hand, I would joke that for the people who need to make the appointment and show up in person and be penalized by being charged a late cancel, if they don't show up, some people need that to show up. And I joke that that's job security Mm -hmm. and they (laughs) laugh, but it's true. Like we need a human being sometimes to hold us accountable. And I think that's great. And So as we have this growth in technology, and this is something I'm personally interested in, is how far can we take technology versus when do we need a person? And that might be different for everyone. Some people might be able to handle their own plumbing, uh, but they need a personal trainer and vice versa, right?
0: Yeah, that's really really interesting.
1: So I think I have one example of a client right now who's in their early 80s and is semi-retired and yet is busier than ever now working as a consultant in the same field they are semi-retired from. But it's so interesting to this person, and they've done it for so long, that it's a, it's hard to give it up, especially when you're in demand and you have these sort of high adrenaline, fast turnaround types of uh, situations, and it feels great to be wanted and to feel like, oh, these people want me as a consultant. I thought I was retired. But as a result, this person also has health needs and postural needs and has a bad back and all these things. And has a hard time doing their home exercises, even just one of them, because there's that lack of momentum in that area. That area is less familiar, right, over a long time. And so I use the analogy of the tugboat. And so I, am, I told this person, imagine that you're a cruise ship. Your life is a cruise ship. You've been at this for a long time. And so the older you are, let's just say the larger your cruise ship. So I am not here to make you do a 90 degree turn. That's not even interesting to me. I'm a tugboat. But if I can change the arc of your path just a few degrees, I know over the course of many, let's just say nautical miles for the sake of the the, uh, (laughs) story, that over time, that little nudging, and I think that's a really important word, nudging, over time is eventually going to lead you there. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of that positive reinforcement from the person. And knowing when to say, Hey, listen, you know, we've been having the same conversation for a while. You're not doing your exercises. How can we step back and look at this differently before it becomes more negative? And that's not really my style of coaching to chide people or like guilt them into doing things because that's not the role I want to serve in people's lives.
0: Right? No, no, no. That's really good. And I think, so some of my takeaways from this are It really does have to do with your time commitment. So if you're going to lay out and say, I want to have this habit, I'm going to have to dedicate the time necessary to be able to do that. But I'm also hearing a part where it is a little bit of repetition, where you have to make sure that you're consistent in how you apply the interest in this habit and the dedication to it. And even if I just use a simple one, the doing your dishes right after you eat, you know, those habits instead of leaving the dishes there and just doing dishes once a day or once every couple days, which I'm not even going to go into because that's a whole different issue. But I really think that those are the things where it's knowing that getting up and doing it right away is part of the habit forming. And so those are kind of my takeaways from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Cal actually talks a lot in his book about mental health habits. And he dedicates a whole section of a chapter to things like positive self-think. And there's a bunch of scientific evidence that supports that, that people that are having a rough time are able to sort of mitigate their own stress factors. And there's evidence that sort of supports that positive talk is something that a lot of people can master the challenge, though, is I think just as easy as it is to kind of form the habit of positive talk, it's also easy to form the habit of negative talk. And that negative self-talk, I feel like, has more prevalence in terms of outside factors leading into us. You know, people see pictures of the perfect body form and they say, like, that's what I need to strive for. And then that kind of rolls around in their heads. So um, I'd like for you to, if there's anything that you want to address in terms of those mental habits and how that mental self-talk can actually be a positive and how maybe if you've worked with any clients where that's part of what you have to do to be able to help them form a better overall health habit is getting into that positive mentality.
1: Oh my goodness. Absolutely. And I think first and foremost, it's important to harp on the why of something, you know, because if you have someone who thinks they want to do something I immediately go to, okay, let's see how well we can describe this. How And how great of detail can we get into this? Because is this just something that's surface level, to your point, you saw on, on the web or on social media and you think you want it, but you haven't really done the, the work yet to think about why? Is it just a shiny object or is this a commitment? Is this a right. priority?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's really important because you're going to have to invest time. And I want to call attention to something about habits because we're all creatures of habit. It's just about different things. It's how we're wired. And the goal of creating a habit is to put it into our subconscious to the point that we don't have to expend mental energy to do it anymore. And I wish more people kind of use that as a framework for habit formation because you're going to have to invest energy into creating a habit before it can become more automatic just like learning to tie your shoes, right? Mm -hmm. I have a young child, so now I see the world anew through his eyes and everything that he's learning. You know, there are times where even I get impatient. Why isn't he learning this faster? Oh, I forgot. He's, this is all new to him. It's not new to me. And so I think sometimes when we look at things through the eyes of a beginner or just someone who's open to learning and growing, that we have to accept, if you really want this habit, however big or small, you are going to have to invest time in the repetitions. And that's where... Coming back to the whole why of things, I love to use books. I love to read, and there are so many good books. To the point of whether it's you know psychology or you know podcasts like this show, where there's a great compendium of knowledge in a certain area by a person who's very knowledgeable and experienced in that area, just like you are with this subject area, right? Uh, the post-grad cheat sheet, and mm-hmm. so leaning on other people who are expert in those areas to say, hey, like, how can I? do a deeper dive into my self-awareness and to figure out like, do I really want this habit? And so some things come to mind, one of which is uh, a very, very popular book, James Clear's Atomic Habits. Mm-hmm. And I use things like that as a launching point in various ways to explain to people, listen, if you really want this habit, you're not going to get it tomorrow. We know it's going to take at least 21 or 30 to 45 days, right? Depending on how, how big it is. But, what we want to do is decide, do we want to commit to it so that we can get it to the point where we've made the effort to make it subconscious? And then I think once we understand that that is a commitment, you know, that we want the results that come with that commitment, by having that sort of granular or atomic habit style of approach, it's, hey, there's not so much onus on today or any one session or if you have a slip up, you know, cleaning the dishes that one day. It's the fact that you created the awareness around a goal that you're committed to, Mm -hmm. and you don't beat yourself up for when you mess up, but over time, just know that that tugboat is nudging you in that direction, and many days from now, you will be more automatic at that. And I think it was Brian Tracy who said in one of his books, you know, people generally have one of two problems, and I love this because I always kind of, whenever I'm unsure of something, I bring it back to this. You either don't know what you want, or you don't know how to get it. Right. And so I think he said a lot of the people just simply don't know what they want, because once you do, then you can figure out how to get it, especially now with the Internet. And so whether it's a habit or weight loss or muscle gain or you know, a lot of the typical health ones, I think it's important to note also that industry plays a very important role in influencing people because they want to sell you things. Then you have, you know, big players like our government and health insurers who want to decrease healthcare spending. So just bringing it back to like the health example, it's important to consider that there are these massive influences already out there and what are they doing for you? So I always kind of pull it back to, you know, meditate on it for yourself. What is it that you really want? And if you can figure that out, then you can figure out how to get it.
0: No, I think that that's really important. And I I want to kind of shift that thought into something that I see every day, and I'm assuming you kind of saw this when you were teaching regularly as well, but one of the biggest things that young people kind of consistently say to me is, Dr. Scott, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed, I have so many different things, trying to form a habit seems daunting. And it's it's they can't even get to that first part that you're talking about of why do they want to do this or what would this help? And the funny part to me is if I break it back down and I say, well, perhaps you would be less stressed, like let's talk about the root cause of your stress. And we actually sit in my highest level campaigns class and we actually discuss what is the root cause of some of their stress. And when that root cause comes back to things that are just behavioral habits, simple behavioral habits, my room in my area is a mess and disorganized. I don't feel like I have enough time to be doing my homework because I'm always playing catch up. I'm behind and I can't get ahead. Sometimes my brain wanders and I can't get it to sort of shut down or I feel like I'm not sleeping. And then when I don't sleep, it makes me anxious and it kind of creates this circle. And so the more we have these conversations, and I assume that a majority of the people listening to this are going to have that will have resonated with some of them to where they'll say like, oh yeah, that part's me or all of those are me. And it's almost like we kind of form bad habits because we get in the habit, especially for young people who are in high school, in college, just starting their career, that interest to sort of hustle, to make it, to prove yourself, to be the best of a group really does push people sometimes to be overly competitive or to stay up late And that's almost forming bad habits. So I guess I want to ask you the question of, do you feel or do you have any advice on kind of getting out of bad habits, so kind of undoing a habit? Um, And then what are some of the things that you've seen people struggle with that maybe is a habit that they didn't know they had, and it's preventing them from reaching this other goal that they have told you, oh, this is my actual, this is where I want to go. But then in your journey to get there with them as you're nudging them along and you're the tugboat, you realize like they, you know, if we use the cruise ship analogy, they actually have a rudder that is helping them go the other direction. And you're like, oh, well, actually, you have this bad habit that's going to be preventative. So let's address that first.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think, first and foremost, a big one is self sabotage. And I think deep down it's a combination of, to your point, so much momentum in another direction or maybe not fully checking in with oneself on why they want something or why they think they want it. And I know this is becoming more common now. And while it might not have direct research tied to outcomes, especially because anything lifestyle-related is so like person-to-person and you can't track everything that everyone's ever done. And right. so I think that the tools such as meditation and journaling and getting your thoughts out, especially when you have one or more stressors in a different direction. A lot of times what I've seen as a coach is that compounds on people, even when they're aware of it and even when they tried not to let it, our, our problems still compound on us. You know, you don't get to choose when you have multiple things going on, especially mm-hmm. when like, you know, a family member's sick. Oh, and then this pops up. Oh, and then you have a, a work project that's due in two weeks that just came up. You don't get to pick those ones. You know, those types of adversities are brought to your doorstep. And so that's why I believe one of the easiest things someone can do is be a little kinder to themselves and set a longer arc for when they want to have the habit by, because what happens is, oh, okay, I want to shred for the wedding. When you get married, well, three months. Well, how long have you been engaged? Uh, two years. Okay, well, we can't go back to you know, 21 months ago when you first got engaged, but we have this amount of time. Let's talk about realistic expectations. That's another one. And I think when you look at the word smart goals, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic and timely or time oriented. I really believe those last two letters, the combination of realistic and how it relates to time is very important because all goals are realistic to a degree if you give yourself enough time. Right. And I think the important thing within that is can we be specific about what we want and how do we tie that back to Everything else and what's going on, and that's where I believe meditation comes in. There are some fabulous resources out there for that. You know, we have free apps mm-hmm. uh, for meditation. If you need music, some people like transcendental meditation. Like there are many forms of it. I just believe that checking in with yourself, or even just breathing and you know, closing your eyes, sometimes is very useful to check in with yourself. And sometimes before actually acting we need to come at it from a place of centeredness mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to be completely zen but you know, to my point from earlier more so just do i really want this thing and how badly do i want it because i've seen people show up for years and they exercise and they want the goals or so they voice it but then everything else they say is they're only halfway in but you know what sometimes being halfway in gets you at least that far until you're ready to be more in. so i think it's that matter of centeredness and being kinder to yourself and also more realistic in terms of your trajectory or the the time it takes to get to a goal. Because you can, you can commit partially for a while.
0: No, that's really good advice. And I I think that a lot of people don't hear that enough. They don't hear it's okay to do 70% for a while if you're going through other things. And, And while you need to move yourself in that direction and just give yourself more time, I think people here you have to be 100% in. And if you're not, you're going to fail. And it's kind of like an all or nothing thing. And that I definitely think weighs on a lot of young people even more because then they really get this all or nothing anxiety. And the, you know, to, to prove my point, it sort of becomes like this vicious circle. So some of the habits that I have my students form in my class, and because my students actually read Cal's book, we actually take stuff by chapter. So there's a chapter that talks about being fully present. And I think some people think they know what that means, but do you have an example of you being fully present? Like when are moments when you are fully present?
1: Absolutely, yes. Uh, and I, I bring it back to, that, to the word meditation, which uh, one person who I consider a sort of spiritual guide in my life has posited it as uh, to become familiar with. As the definition for meditation. And I believe it's important to, if you can facilitate this yourself, and this is a habit even, just becoming more present more often. And I think it's important to do and and check in with yourself. When you do the things you love, I do believe in a way um, that that can be true. And so when I'm in a session with a client, or like I'm only there, I'm not anywhere else. Or uh, surfing, which I love to do, has been touted by a number of surfers as the ultimate spontaneous occurrence in a natural medium. And literally, you are entirely present physically, mentally. It's a very zen, but also very physical. And and you're out in the ocean, so you have to keep your guard up. I can even attain that when I'm exercising, just doing reps. And I think that's important to sort of be able to clear out your mental status. And if I can share a bit of a story, I'll try to keep it short. I remember back in 2012, I, had, I was working my first office job. And I mean, the, the, the office itself wasn't very high paced, but it was pretty stressful. Uh, but I enjoyed what I did. And I worked long days and the pay wasn't great. So I had to do personal training before and after work. And I taught uh, at a different college at the time in, in graduate school. So I was working with commute 90 hour weeks, actually. And I, and I had taken on a second set of responsibilities within the practice because I wanted to prove my worth and maybe earn a better salary. So I was working a lot and I remember drinking my fourth coffee of the day on the six train to go down to Brooklyn to teach, but falling asleep, sitting in the subway car. And I thought something about this isn't working. I got to make a change. And I'm sure a lot of people have that type of uh, experience in one way or another, and at the time, I remember you know, meditation was becoming very popular. It was being posted everywhere. People like Deepak Chopra were becoming very prominent as figures and influencers in that area. So let me give this thing a shot. And even if it was six minutes in the middle of the day, I would put on the headphones, put on the meditation music, not knowing what to do, and just close my eyes. And I had this giant support beam behind my desk chair where I sat, and I would just tilt my head against the, the giant support beam and just kind of close my eyes. I remember one time, 28 minutes later, I woke up (laughs) and so I'm I'm not advocating for that at work, but it led me down this path. And I thought, well, I understand the human body. Clearly the coffee or the sympathetic nervous system stimulant wasn't doing it for me. So I kind of needed to go the opposite way. For me, it was a a physiologic function. It was let's induce some parasympathetic to complement or counter the sympathetic nervous system. And I think a lot of people deal with that with stress where cortisol and stress applies the same thing. And so that's one sort of counterweight to stress is meditation and just being able to sort of check in with yourself and realize that, hey, the work stress, my boss wants this, the stress is happening, that stress is happening, work deadlines, schoolwork, whatever it is, everyone's got stress. But it's how you work with that that I think is really important. And that was an important point for me where from then on, going back to research, okay, we know that the half-life of caffeine is about six hours. So to a lot of people's point no more caffeine for me after two o'clock, right? Most days you'll really know I'm struggling if I'm having caffeine after two that day Mm -hmm. or just, uh, knowing, you know, the time of your circadian rhythm to your point about waking up and going to sleep. If you have a consistent wake sleep cycle, then you should know when your energy tends to wax and wane based on that. You know, there's a lot of research on that now, and we have a better understanding of what that looks like. So I think the science is important, but what's important is to center yourself best and first before you use the science that you can then best use it for you specifically.
0: No, I think that that's really important. And I I appreciate the story because what I think your first choice was, which was to continue to add the stimulant throughout the day, is most people's first choice. And they kind of move in that direction And for you, it actually was kind of the opposite that worked. And I think that a lot of people wouldn't keep looking. They just keep adding coffee and keep dumping more of the stimulant on top of it. Um, I think that when I talk to my students and some of the things that I try really hard to get them to to self-actualize and to work through, and it's not necessarily a habit that we form, but every week I make them look into something and do a little bit of interflexion and and introspection and sort of ask themselves the questions of, am I really living fully present? So when I sit down to eat, am I doing nothing but eating? Am I just focusing on my food, chewing my food, digesting, and I'm not scrolling through TikTok at the same time, or I'm not watching a TV show or trying to read my school books. I'm just spending 15 to 20 minutes eating and digesting my food. And then when I move on to my homework, I don't have music playing in the background. I don't have the television on. I'm not stopping every two seconds to text with my friends. And my version of asking them to live fully present essentially boils down to me saying to them, I really want you to learn how to do one thing at a time. And when I'm saying that, I'm not trying to unravel the concept of multitasking. I'm trying to make them realize that when they are able to actually control their focus, everything they do becomes brighter and better. And their life starts to like, it was very funny because I started to have students literally say to me, but my food tastes better. And I'm like, of course, your food tastes better. And they're like, that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, actually, it makes a ton of sense. Or they'll say, I'm faster at doing my homework. And I my answer is, of course, you're faster at doing your homework. Because you're not getting distracted and your mind doesn't have to like reset every six minutes. When your mind has to come back and pull back into that focus, that's a lot harder. And I think that one of the greatest gifts I got is years ago when I actually took Cal's class in person, I became very good at living fully present and It was hard for some people because when I would go and teach and go to school, my phone goes away and people would be like, well, I can't reach you for six or seven hours. And I said, "Uh uh-huh, I'm teaching. And they said, well, can't you look at your phone? And my answer is no, because then I'm not focusing on my students and I'm not teaching. Or when I'm in a client meeting, I don't answer other phone calls. I don't look at my phone. I don't do those things because my clients deserve my attention One of the things I I try to really work hard with my students, because the more that they say to me things like, I feel like I never have enough time, my answer to them is, let's just do a little exercise. So I will encourage everyone listening to the podcast to do this exercise. Open up your phone. And in all of our phones, it tracks how much screen time we use. And the modern statistic, even for someone who works in social media on their phone Mm -hmm. and has to use their phone for their daily work. The modern statistic is that we really shouldn't be on our phones more than two or three hours a day. And if, Tim, you and I think about this, back when we were kids, phones weren't even a thing. You know what I mean? Like people didn't have these phones in their pockets. They weren't spending two or three hours a day getting lost on TikTok or any of the social media platforms on Instagram or Pinterest or anything that they can get lost looking stuff up and they just don't go down those rabbit holes and i think that that buying back that time like you kind of said you can't go backward and you know say to that bride let's go back 24 months or 21 months and start your your weight loss journey then as opposed to 3 months before the wedding my answer to my students is always you're young now like you're in your 18 19 20 21 22 23 like whatever you're in your young formative years, this is the time to be forming good habits. This is the time to say to yourself, I'm not going to lose time on something that doesn't benefit me in the long run. So I just wanted to kind of throw out to you, what are some personal habits that you have that have made you successful?
1: That is a great question, Maria. I have long taken the long-term trajectory and I'm not saying do as I do or do as I say, but this might be helpful. Because I got to the point where I was studying the subject area around age 21. And you know, that's a formative age, to your point, for a lot of people. And I just thought, wow, you know, even though I seem pretty healthy on the surface, and you are when you're 21 years old and you work out a lot and you're <laughs> playing sports, you can go out and have some drinks with your friends, be hungover, go eat fast food, maybe take a short nap, and then bounce right back, right? Mm-hmm. And like, nothing happened. As you get older, it doesn't really happen that way. And as I started learning more about the human body, I realized, wow, if I really want to live well into older age, and I do, I realize I'm not going to be able to make these changes overnight, but I got to start somewhere. And it was helpful for me, especially at the time being engrossed in learning about nutrition, learning about human health and the changes that happen to us and what to expect as we age. And so right now I have a goal, uh, I'm 36 years old, by the time I'm 50, I have a goal that I do at least a few minutes, five or 10 every day of yoga. Because I know as we get older, we have a loss of collagen in our bodies, we are not as well able to rebuild our tendons and our ligaments, we just naturally get stiffer. And so that's a long-term goal of mine. Whereas when I was 21 and learning this stuff, I was just thinking, I gotta learn how to cook and actually make healthy foods palatable. (laughs) And the slop that I was cooking, then I would not eat eat now. But you have to start somewhere, right? And yeah, the, the early smoothies I made, I had no idea what I was doing. And to me, like Mexican night was just throw together everything you can think of that would be in a Mexican restaurant into one pot and cook <laughs> it until everything's cooked thoroughly. And then I will have that stew for the next three days because I'm a college student on a budget. And now, like, I, I love cooking genuinely. And we can make better dishes now than we did 15 years ago. And also I wanna point out that even though youth isn't blessing me the way it did 15 years ago, I'm almost certainly in better shape in a lot of ways, wiser, smarter, much better habits, and would probably, if I fought the younger version of me, I would probably win, almost certainly. So (laughs) not that that's what it's about, but I always use that as an analogy for my clients regardless of age, like, hey, I knew I wasn't gonna be able to make those changes overnight, but I committed myself to the direction. And I know that's hard to do when people are, especially when you're paying attention to social media and you're paying attention to these things, these sort of marketing or distractions or whatever you want to call it, influences. And they're trying to grab your attention with these black and white things. Like do this, get that. And it just doesn't work like that because you can't pause your life from everything else to just do that input-output. You have to assimilate that input-output into the rest of your life. And so those are a few of the habits that, you know, what does it mean to... Be healthy. Oh, you should probably learn how to cook or at least you know eat healthy foods. What does that mean to me? And how to commit to that over the long term? I think those are the types of things that I would focus on and, and have been focusing on myself in terms of habits. Uh, so how about you, Maria? Like, What are some ways that you decide to form a habit or teach your students or whether it's your student or a client? What are some examples of habits that you've taught them to form?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think as a professional in communication, whether it be journalism or public relations, for the majority of my career, one of the things that was sort of a thrust upon me habit, and less necessarily of a, like I knew I needed to do it. Um, when I was in college, email came out, and it was something that we did, but it wasn't a habit that I was ever told you need to you need to read your emails every day. You need to check them multiple times. You need to get in the habit of getting back to people because. Most of my professors hadn't lived their adult life with email as a big thing. Um, They had mail mail, but not email. And as I got into my professional career, it became really apparent to me that the more I could stay up on the primary form of communication that I had with the outside world, that became really important. So I got really good at reading all my emails every day, responding to everyone. As a PR person, if a journalist had a request for me, I knew I could answer it back within a couple hours or within at minimum a day. And that kind of became the industry standard. And it became something where that was something everyone did. It's just more more of my peers, I'd look around and they'd have to struggle with it, whereas I already had that habit in place. So It was very easy for me to do every day. It was the first thing I checked when I got to the office. I would make sure I checked it in the afternoon. I never left the office with like hanging emails or emails that were unaddressed and then took that home with me because that would have then been a stressor. So things like that um, now with social media, monitoring those social media, looking at what content we're putting out and how people are reacting to it. I also think that a habit that has really helped me is the ability to sort of sit and talk to people and have conversations in person. And if it was an intern that was working for me and I would notice that intern struggling, but they wouldn't actually say it, they didn't wanna come forward and say, I need help with this, or I don't understand this. It was easy for me and probably largely why I ended up becoming a professor. But it was easy for me to say to them, look, I I noticed that you're great in X, Y, and Z, but A and B seem to be a struggle for you. Let's talk through why that is. Like, is it something you didn't learn? Do you feel like it's not something you know how to do? And having those conversations and having building more interpersonal relationships was always really important for me. So I think that those are the habits that I got really good at forming even people who didn't seem to have problems. I had several people work for me who've now gone on to amazing careers that really didn't need my help, but I still made the effort to check in and sit and talk to them and sit in front of them and look at them and, and then be able to read that body language and everything else that was going on as well. So I think those are my biggest habits. Um, as we finish up though, uh, what are some of your takeaways that you would have for any of the listeners?
1: I believe it's important to continue to layer things in as you can. So if you look at the different areas of life, uh, you know, your your work, your health, your emotional and, and physical well-being and social, you know, your family life and anything else you want to include in there, financial, things like that, just life goals. I think it's important to check in on each of those areas because quite often when you're having a problem in an area, it usually means that you're paying more attention to other areas, or you just had something come up, you know, like a natural disaster. You can't really prevent those from happening. Final thoughts and takeaways. The main thing is there are so many pieces of literature out there where you can sort of use them as a tool or even podcasts such as this to uh, build in those layers. I think it's important to set the foundation and say, okay, long-term in this area of my life, where do I want to be realistically? Then we can worry about the when and the details. And for one example, going back to meditation 10 years ago, I just wanted to get regular with it. So it was probably weekly or at least monthly. Mm -hmm. And now I'm over 800 consecutive days. Nice. And even if that's just going to bed, listening to delta wave music, which by the way, that's another big takeaway is literally listening to different types of brain waves can help put your brain in a better state. So if you are stressed, or if you want to attain a certain mental state. Uh, I learned from a a book by a guy named Dr. Dr. Joe Dispenza. He has a book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. One of my big takeaways from that book was we have all these different brainwave states, and each of them has their own utility. But just by using sound as as a conduit, we can actually change our brain state. And I think tools such as meditation from that context are extremely helpful to get in touch with ourselves, with, with or without the desire to change a habit, but especially to help support habit change or habit building, because you're going to come at things from a more centered place. And I agree with you fully, Maria, that cultivating presence itself is a great habit and it can take time. And I can't tell you when it's set in for me. In terms of when I made that switch, but I know it's been over these past ten years where I've been able to do what you described, and like yourself, I'm not multitasking. I'm not checking my email when I'm at work. I'm with the client. I'll check emails in between if I have a few minutes, but I'm really not a multitasker in that way because I've chosen to cultivate presence. And for those who can do it, that's great. Uh, I'm just not one who's going to, you know, look at a client and, and check an email at the same time. I don't think I can. Physically do that at this point. So I think it's important to just kind of ask yourself, what do I want my life to look like in 10 years? Create the longer trajectory and just say, Am I headed towards that in this area? Because that way it puts less pressure on you to really do it all right in this moment.
0: No, I think that that's really great. And thank you for the takeaways. Um, I have a really quick one. I think mine comes back to something that you said about really looking at the goal that you're setting and, and the purpose behind it and what you're hoping to get out of it. I think that my takeaway and that my wish for most people listening to this would be if you're interested in forming a habit, start at the root of why do you want to form that habit? What's your impetus behind it? Are you truly dedicated to making this happen? Is it something that's going to stick with you? Uh, Again, the doing the dishes, the making the bed, the meditating, is it something that you see that adds value to your life without having to do a lot of convincing for yourself? And so I think that that would be my takeaway and sort of my end to the episode. So thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. I really appreciate it. I know your time is extremely valuable. So thank you for spending your time with us today.
1: Yes, thank you, Dr. Scott. It's always great to catch up with you. And thank you for having me. I love having these kinds of conversations.
0: Join us next week to learn more on the Postgrad Chi Thanks for joining us for the Postgrad Cheat Sheet. Click in our description and visit the website to see our upcoming topics so you can submit your unspoken questions. Connect with us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Postgrad Cheat Sheet.